0: You're listening to Voices of Value, a selection of valuable insights designed to help you get more out of your professional and personal life through simple and easy-to-adopt life lessons. If you're keen to enjoy a better quality of life at work and at home, sit back and join the conversation with your hosts, Peter Kakos and Rick Rushton. Welcome to Voices of Value, another
1: episode with Rick Rushton, myself, Peter Kakos. And a very special guest, Peter. Very very special. F- we've
2: gone top draw, mate. We've got racing royalty right to the top shelf to get a seven-time Roy Higgins medalist a six-time Scobie Breezley medalist. For those who don't follow racing, that's a bit like saying you're a six-time Brownlow medalist or a, a Dell M winner if you're into AFL, NRL. He's also in amazing career best form. Just three short months ago, Pete, he rode six winners, count them, six winners at a Metro meeting at Headquarters Flemington at the VRC. First person to do that in history as we welcome into Voices of Value our first interviewee,
3: Craig Willow-Williams. Craig, thanks for joining us this morning. It's my pleasure and thanks for the introduction, but um, I am vertically challenged. So (laughs) to say that I might be from the top shelf or the top drawer, it's very hard for jockeys to reach that top shelf. So uh, usually I will need an aid or a step ladder.
2: Well, you just stand on your wallet, mate. We know that because uh, that's six, uh, wins on that Flemington Saturday in July, if memory serves. That was the day before you flew out on a very expensive uh,
3: European holiday, so it was probably important that you had those winners, I would have thought. Well, it was when we originally went from the Hotel from Hell at Lake Como and then stayed on <laughs> Bellagio, and it was quite funny because uh, um, I've got four children and my wife and, and uh, her mother came over from, from Ukraine, and we all met up in, uh, at Lake Como. And I remember going there from arriving there, flying off our Emirates up the front, and then getting a Maserati down to Lake Como. I thought, oh, this is amazing. Just left Melbourne. Um, it looked like I've still sewn up the, another championship, which was really important, and getting to have a family break in some warm weather. And uh, I thought it was great until I turned up and they said, uh, we don't have a reservation for you. <laughs> and then I've realised what customer service is and how things work differently in Australia then compared to how it was in this particular hotel um, in Italy at Lake Como and then I remembered that first night I haven't seen my wife or my children for nearly three weeks and then I rang my travel agent at 4.30 in the morning and Candice actually did win the um, the, the best travel agent in, in Australia and sure enough the reason why she won that she was on the phone and she said tomorrow at 10 o'clock all we do is pack up your luggage go across to the jetty 15 minutes and fr- 15 meters in front of your hotel and you'll have a great experience at Lake Como. And she was right. It was fantastic. It was the grand hotel, Cerbera Leone on the end of, um, on Bellagio. And it was fantastic. And then I remember when we paid to leave and we don't have one room. We had, we had a beautiful suite, a couple of suites and three rooms. And, and then I said, Oh, well that was out that, that one day, that six winners, which was history breaking. And, <laughs> It paid for that, and then my wife goes, "No, it didn't, because you haven't rounded off. That was euros. Now convert it to Australian dollars." And <laughs> went, "Wow, okay. Well, that was a great day, luckily, but it was a fantastic time that we spent in Lake Como, and it was well worth the money comparing it to uh, the hotel from hell we had the first night."
2: Mm, but you're right into the work-life balance, and that was a an end result after you know the back end of a fairly strong campaign for you, and it was a real neck-to-neck struggle with you know sort of some of your opponents to get that sort of premiership title. So, and we really wanted to cover that over what will be a two-part series because there's so much content that we can get out here but you've talked about customer experience you've talked about sort of how that result help pay for that experience with your family and so one of the real core values we've got with Voices of Value is we want to bring voices of value to our listeners who can actually be the best they can be uh, and but make sure that they're understanding that you know, their business isn't their life, it just funds their lifestyle and you know, as we speak we're recording from your beautiful home and we've seen all the improvements you've made to make sure that when you're at home you're really at home with the pool and with your alfresco area and making sure you're set up comfortably and so there's lots we can cover today. When I went through that introduction and you know I could have added so much more stuff in there I mean you rode for the queen you've ridden you know group one winners internationally in the UK and in France and Dubai and Hong Kong uh, do you pinch yourself a boy from Cranbourne sort of doing those sorts of things or is it just something that you now sort of think about as you're coming you know back into the back end of your career type stuff I'm not, I'm not too sure what do you think when you hear that sort of introduction?
3: Uh, I'm not too sure I just um I remember when I contacted my wife and and uh, said, oh, I had a really good day. I said, yeah, they're riding up. You had six winners, but, and it's like a big deal. Aren't you meant to do that every weekend? So <laughs> I guess um, I was very, I, I am fortunate. Um, I've got a great family support network and a great fa- uh, group around me, not just, uh, not just my, my business model um, and the people I have around me, but I have really good and confident, positive people around me. And they're not people that tell me what I want to hear. They tell me what I need to hear. And if I need advice, I have those people around me and. I guess from Cranbourne, I I knew it was a big sacrifice. I was the youngest of of three boys in in the family. My father's a horse trainer. My mum held a trainer's licence. She's a Harrison. So in Gippsland, she's like a Hayes. So I didn't really have much of a choice when my brother stole my food and I was the smallest. (laughs) And every day I thank him. But there's a lot of sacrifice that goes on. But I love working hard for the goals and it just means in the end, it doesn't mean that you always get the end result. But I know if I've covered every base and it doesn't happen, I wasn't good enough. I made an error. I had bad luck. At least I didn't fail in regards to I didn't give it
1: my all, and uh, I think that's really important. So, Craig, you know, rightly so, you'd be classified as an elite jockey, and you know, when you when you win a Caulfield Cup and a Cox Plate, and you you ride for the Queen, which we want to, certainly want to touch on. But in your field, I mean, doing what you do, what do you think are the characteristics to make? An elite jockey, elite. I guess we're just sports people, like, um,
3: like uh, any any profession. And I guess for what I know, which is horse racing, um, it's just so important that you got to love what you do, and you got to be you got to be dedicated to it. Um, even though I have four children, I'm married. They really do sacrifice a lot for my career, which in turn um, I'm the only one who's the the earner in the family so it does give them really nice holidays um the best opportunity we can have in regards to education and and lifestyle so they do sacrifice a lot and i guess as rick touched on before you do need a balance and i remember when i started off and and i'm not one to go out and really celebrate after a win i expect that that's my job and i want the next winner i love that feeling of you got it right you got the winner and working with a with a horse is another interesting part but um, I love that exhilaration, and the only way that I get that feeling again is riding another big winner. So I'm looking for the next one. I actually work harder, and drive people, my people around me, work harder after the win, and not to to sit in the glory of it or or the feeling at the moment, because I want to feel that again. So and that's I've I've been successful by working really hard. I was never gifted as a when I started out. I don't believe, and uh, I just had a love for horses, and they would run for me. And then um, from then on. Uh, I learned all my skills. I got confidence, which was, I think was the most important thing. And I was able to lucky enough to travel around the world and learn so many different things and also appreciate what we have on offer here in Australia and how lucky we are to be Australians living in
1: Australia. Mm. And how does riding for the Queen, how did, how did that come about? Well, I was, I was
3: riding over that year. Um, I rode my first Group 1, um, the Australasian Oaks, for Lee Friedman. And then three days later, I was on an aeroplane going over to England and... And at the time, um, uh, I'd been over there during Christmas because I'd met a girl here. She's an English girl, and i finished the carnival. And my father was—he was quite a pioneer in in the way that he managed. He's always been—he was a very good rider, he was a very good trainer, good ho- great horseman. But he was very good with all the apprentices he had, and and getting down to to me as as his son. I was also an apprentice to my father. Um, he had a great model and an idea, and it, it's interesting because. He did everything that he didn't do. Um, he was eligible to travel, so he encouraged me to travel, which back then, not many jockeys travelled. But he also said that the mentality's got to change. You don't have a holiday when the stewards enforce you to have a holiday when you get suspended. You choose your destiny. And, and I think that's played a big part in the person I am and the professional I am, because I choose when I have my, my breaks. And so when I'm out there competing every time, I'm out there to make sure I'm getting the best results, my head's clear... And the only the holiday I'm looking forward to is the winning post. Is when I choose the winning post to be, to have that to have that holiday. And I found that was good. And so I went over to England and I was riding for Mick Shannon. And then I was very lucky. The first month was very tough. I went from riding my first Group One winner and and being one of the leading riders here in Victoria, to then going to England and the horses that they offered me. I could walk faster then, and it was, <laughs> yeah, it was it was completely different. Um, there was there was you could see back then you could see the um the social structure as well um of where they put you like the governor is the boss and 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 there was a big structure in regards to society not not just the yeah. racing industry so there was levels of where you were put and i was never brought up like that i was brought up that everyone's even and uh, and treat everyone the same so that was a little bit different and a bit more confronting and when you realise how that changed later on through success, I maintain that I said mentally that it's never going to change me because I remember the experience I had when I first arrived here and one thing led to another and then um, I started having a few winners, the stable started to fly, his number one jockey broke his leg and then I got more opportunities, we got better results and next minute I was racing against my idols from all around Europe every weekend and then on a Sunday, Saturday was mainly England and on a Sunday we're jumping and Competing in Italy for Group 1 races in France and <laughs> Germany and Scotland and Ireland. It's just like, wow, what a different life. Mm. You're riding for the sheikhs um, who, who rule countries. And then I was lucky enough to, to, to put on the Queen's Colours. And I rode for her twice. And uh, I finished second and third for her. So I didn't get to ride her a winner. She wasn't at those meetings. But it was such a privilege to to ride in her Majesty's Colours. And as it turned out, I actually basically ran into her at um, at the Oaks meeting at Epsom one year um the Queen Mother was coming down the stairs and the way that the, the mounting yard works over there it's at the back behind the stands and the jockey's room's in front so we have to go through the blocked off by security but go through the stands through the people into the mounting yard out the back to go to meet your connections and um I'd had a really good start to the season with um with um one of the um uh, B Arab owners and I knew he was there for that meeting because they in dubai it's too hot so they all leave dubai at that time of the year and come to to england and uh i knew he was there on uh in the mounting yard so i want to get out and make a really good impression and so because i want to leave early, there's no other jockeys and then i remember that they were actually green coats back then and they said uh, oh you can't go the the queen's coming or the queen mother's coming and i said oh and the bloke goes oh you know that's that young young williams he's got to ride for mr shannon he's got to get out there and to ride anyway so Somehow they talked his way and they let me go and I couldn't help it. Everyone's looking back up these escalators and while I'm looking back up the escalators and trying to work out why everyone's having a good look up there, I'm going through the doors and I nearly walk into a lady and that was the queen. She goes, go on, go on then, go on. (laughs) Anyway, and then it was quite funny because my mother and my auntie was there to support me um, at that meeting. I rode the derby the next next day and that was the first time Australian jockey had ridden the derby for over a decade. So it's a big privilege. And um, and I remembered that they were up there, and there was a couple of um, elderly ladies next to, him and I said, "Oh, did you see what happened there? That young 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 Williams?" And then so they asked what happened, and they said, uh, "Oh, the young Williams just walked into the Queen, and I don't even know <laughs> if he realised it was her." And the scary so,
2: thing was, she asked you for a tip, probably did she? No, she. Didn't she
3: actually—they tell me she does love the races, she loves and that. and my mate that's sat in the, in the in the chariot with Yvonne Summers. Um, who actually introduced me to Mick Shannon who gave me the introduction in the first place yeah. actually sat in the chariot and then she he said that she does like to support the horses so, mm.
2: so and when you talked about the opportunity to ride for her came through a bit of bad luck with the, the leading jockey breaking his leg and things of that nature you sort of almost flippantly say that but you know for me luck's when opportunity meets the, you know your preparation and you prepared fairly well and you are obviously you know very diligent with what you do we've had this chat privately as friends but I know you often believe that you weren't the most naturally gifted or most talented but you're never going to be the uh, least prepared or you know someone who wasn't going to just leave anything to chance you're a very hard worker what would be the two or three key things you focus on every week as you lead in as you got this weekend coming a a full book of rides you've got some amazing rides what if if our listeners were to say we could model some of his preparatory work what are the two or three key things you do to give yourself the best chance to perform on show day
3: well, for jockeys, we have to be bigger with our weight. So that's yep. so important. So it's so important that you realize what you, – look, you can all have little vices and love have tr- treats and things like that, but it's when you choose to be able to do those things. And for us, um, it's so important that uh, I'm competing at the lightest weight I need to be yep. and to be strong. There's no point me turning up saying I made the weight, but the horse had to carry me around. My job is to carry the horse. And there's no doubt when you've got really good preparation in regards to your diet, and that your your time schedule, that I find that you've always got that much more time. It's like um, in a race, if I've got everything covered, I know my decision-making is just so clear and simple mm. because I've got every aspect covered. I, I know what my opposition can do. I know what the jockeys usually like to do. Their idiosyncrasies. I know what I like to do on my horse. So I think I've always got a lot more time to make those decisions, even though they're split-second decisions yep. because I'm prepared I'm relaxed, I'm confident. I think they're really important factors. I love doing my homework. I love getting into my office and spending hours on doing that. That's part of me and part of my preparation. And I guess remembering back to when I started out in England, a lot of those jockeys didn't do homework. Not many jockeys walked the tracks, but not that I was doing anything different. I had to because I've never ridden there before. Mm. So I had to find out where the 1,000 metres was, where's the 600, how they rode those tracks. And it is completely different racing because of their undulations. We've got beautiful flat tracks, yep. but ours is usually about speed and positions, like in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. But over in England, it's all about having your horse to relax and settle on those big testing tracks. So completely different. So um, so not only due, due to success, I gained confidence, but I also got that great exposure, for the, the, especially the Arab owners that breed all around the world and race. And I've, I remember marking all my form as I do, still do, and I remember jo- a few of the jockeys actually grabbed it and joked about it and rode all over it and everything else and they didn't walk tracks. And if you go to England now or your listeners are watching at Royal Ascot, you watch – or everyone walks tracks. Now, I'm not saying I changed that. No. But that was one thing that I was made to do when I was an apprentice and it's amazing now how the mentalities change over there that they are really athletic – they're jockeys now—they all do their form. They're they're all walking tracks, and they've become really, really professional. Them just being gifted, great riders.
2: Mm, so a lack of homework shows up in the schoolroom, and it also shows up in the racetrack. Clearly, if you're doing the homework, you've got your, your best chance of success.
1: So when we're talking about research, what about off the track, Craig? What um you see, you spend time um in the study? What what does that entail, and how, how much per week would you be doing there?
3: Well it probably starts well before then i have a manager jason bream who's taking over now and we're on the phone non-stop all day trying to find pers- prospective rides and we're trying to find the future winners and so we're planning our horses um, and targeting horses in races well in advance it could be three weeks could be two weeks um, the gray race that comes up which is quite iconic on oaks day we uh, we got in touch with a trainer from new zealand and and really keen to be riding that horse if she comes over or if he comes over. And so we're working with my manager a long way in advance. And then from then, once we get the barrier draws come out, I never really worry about it too much. I might get a bit nosy if I'm bored to look at the weights and everything. But once the barrier draws come out, I just like to sit in the office and, and work it out with the track conditions that we're handed on the day, the rail placement, and then the barriers, the jockeys and the horses that you've got to deal with. So I watch all my opposition. And racing.com now is a great platform where you can go to one uh, website, which is free of charge, so anyone or your listeners can go there. Not Now, since the 1st of October, all the jump-outs are there as well. So you can really do so much homework now, which I love to do. So why well, I think it's fantastic for everyone, because we're sitting around the three of us, we all white watch the same race but have a different opinion. But now we've got vision for it. We all, all at least have an opinion. Um, it's only when the horses now, especially spring carnival, they come from Europe. So I've got to get on the European websites and I like to watch how those horses, how they raced when they were successful, how they were ridden from similar draws to what they've got, and if they failed, why did they fail? So mm-hmm. there might be a way that they were ridden on that day. So even reading form and there's a number or someone's comments, to me, it's not enough. I love to go out there and have my own, make my own opinion of it. Yes, it takes a lot of time, but I enjoy it um but then there is a big balance about getting it right that i'm not too tired because if i get too tired i find that i can become too mechanical on a horse in a race rather than losing that element of doing all your homework being well prepared but being mechanical i still love to feel and do that and i've got people around me that help me out and i've not only do i have my manager i also have a racing riding group that help me out as well with those technical details mm. and i find that's really important and most importantly staying positive and confident and not being unrealistic Yep. But you you have to be positive. If if you're not positive and confident then you might as well not accept the
1: ride or might as well not go out. How often would a um, a horse that would be considered to have absolutely no hope and all of a sudden it's just come from nowhere and totally, you know, left to center? You know, how how often would that happen and why would something like that Happen.
3: Well, it's more likely to happen in the racing industry because we're dealing with animals. But we can go back through Bradbury, and they named horse <laughs> Bradbury's <laughs> Luck. So, so it can happen. You know, when you're talking about sport, and and what's quite amazing is you can have a, the greatest sports person playing their last game, match, competition it doesn't mean they're going to win because mm. it's sport, it's competition. So, it's um, there's so many of those elements. And then when you're dealing with horse, a, a horse, and multiple horses that you're against they don't talk to you they tell you in their body language and we're usually a lot smarter about what they were telling us after the event but um, i guess the only one that's getting it right you know black caviar never got it wrong right and uh,
1: you can see Would it regardless of rider that like well she
3: had a, she didn't actually Luke Nolan got suspended when she started career off she had first Winning rider on Black Caviar was an apprentice from fair. over in mm. Perth. Mm. The last jockey to get beaten on Winx, the superstar mayor, is one of the greatest jockeys that we have around the world in Joe Marrera. Be a great, yeah, uh, a great trivia question. Yep. Um, and then actually, I beat, um, Tom Mitchell the other day, so actually these two people got beaten on Winks. Anyway, <laughs> we won't we won't tell Tom he's, he's meant to be having a holiday and worrying about the pre-season for next year after his great year and, and congratulations to his him.
2: Brownlow medal. Yep,
3: uh, so he's only got another five to catch up to you with Scobie Breezeley's mate. So that's good. I tell I better tell him that, but him uh, but anyway, so Winks Winks um, has got it right um, the last twenty seven times she's competed at the highest level and. That is actually fantastic for racing. Um, We are getting sick of seeing her backside, but, you know, she's great for racing. It's competition. Let's hope it's not, but there is a day that, you know, if she doesn't turn up, then someone's going to win. Yeah, so
2: so you had um, a book of, say, eight rides, you know, at a meeting. Um, I don't know if you've ever done it. Could you quantify how much time you would spend researching each of those rides in terms of, you know, would it be 30 minutes each race? Would it be an hour each race? What would it be if you had to sort of take a stab at it?
3: Well, it all I, I average to say. So I've got ten rides tomorrow. I'm gonna because I'm not riding on Friday night, and on Thursday, due to choice, so yep. I can prepare. And I'm riding Sunday, uh, Sunday, at Cranbourne, and it's a cut many. So I've got five or six down there. So in two days, I've got sixteen competitions. It's like playing, I don't know, sixteen football matches. Yeah. Yep. So it's quite a lot. Yep. Um, I can accept and do that on fitness. But in regards to preparation, I've really got a plan. So it usually takes me five to six hours to do a, a full – I usually have a very busy Saturday, so 10 races. I do love two-year-olds because even if you're doing the replays, they haven't ran many times. Yep. And also they're over short distances. But when you start looking at Caulfield Cups, Melbourne Cups, even though I watch the horses, I, I I like to go back and watch them individually. And I just go back and watch them from start to see how they stand. Do they always jump well? Yep. Could they be a risk of not getting away? And this is not just my horse. This is my opposition. And and I like to go back on that. Sometimes I'd like to go back on the history of that meeting because usually the rail positions are usually the same every year. Mm. So a track can sometimes race similar, the same, the same rail position, same time of the year providing with the same weather conditions yep. as what it's done the previous couple of years. So you, uh, you, never, you never stop doing homework, but there has to be a balance of doing it. So yep. five to, to answer your question, five to six hours before a Saturday.
2: Yep. so it's very likely you could spend an hour researching just one race. It might last for three minutes or two minutes or thereabouts. You know, Melbourne uh, Cup,
3: Caulfield Cup, absolutely. Those staying races, they, yep. they're all ran over long distance and they take a long – I can cut corners, but yep. I find if I cut corners, I'm only cheating myself. So, so. It's,
2: it's like a real estate person listening to this podcast who might have six opens on So imagine researching that open for like an hour before he did it, um, you know, about how you're going to position the property, how you were going to make sure that there was no question that could be asked that you didn't have the answer to, that you're that well prepared. You prepare like a a surgeon going into a major operation or or a pilot flying a long haul flight. You really have it uh, really well done. So the three areas I I asked you about earlier, you said, you know, so clearly we're hearing focus, what you put into your mouth for your weight and how you prepare for your races. What would be two other things that you would focus on in a normal week that we give you the best chance for success on a saturday or a you know a race meeting day sleep sleep
3: <laughs> it's important to have sleep i i find that decision making for us is a lot better we we sometimes deplete our bodies from fluid and food and it's important i know where my my weight is better my decisions better when you actually make sure you have enough time you have I have to sleep. My yep. body needs time. So, what to does that recover. look like,
1: Craig? What time are you getting to bed? What time you? Don't are you don't want up? to
3: see me sleeping. They tell me I snore, but I've never heard myself <laughs> snore. But, but because of our schedule, becomes so busy from now on, we've just got to. As it was put to me, you got to put, you got to get to put some sleep in the sleep bank. So you've got to build up. We know we're busy. We know our schedule's tough, and I think it's important that you have a really good structural in the management part around that. As it was discussed before changing managers, you know what are the things that a manager has to do for you um, in regard to a a jockey's agent, and it's pretty simple. We put it down to those core elements, and I know Rick was in conversations with me about it being a professional um, and sports person, um, but not just in that, in all aspects. And we decided that the managers or people around you got to do everything that that you can't. That's the things, the only things that they can't do, and that's riding track work, riding trials riding races and I like doing my own homework because some people get people to their form for them and that's right but I love to live and die by my own sword so if I cover all those other bases then I'm then left to my devices to maybe concentrate on those those they're the most important points for me that no one else can do for me, I mm. believe. So
2: you've identified the tasks that you need to delegate and you focus on the ones that only you can deliver. And so Pete was saying, what is a, a night's sleep? What time does your head normally hit the pillow and what time do you rise, the, depending on whether you've got to do track work, I guess, but what would be a typical example of a, of a, a sleep pattern for you?
3: Well, I usually get to bed at 9.30, 10 o'clock, sometimes 10.30, and on track work and trials, you have to get up early. That's just how it works. And so what so, time does
2: the alarm go off?
3: And I learned one thing, don't press sleep, never <laughs> press, just, as soon as it goes, learn to get out of bed straight away, that's one, tell- I tell my children, my wife's got about 20 different different times, she go, sets it at that, and then five minutes later, but I'm never going to tell my wife anything, but... No, no. Um, so
2: your head hits the pillow at 10.30, what time do you rise the next day?
3: Oh, it depends, um, if I don't have to ride work the next morning, I'm usually up this time of year, I've got my Rolf for out here, so I have someone working on my body, so, um, and I can... Uh, if I get eight hours sleep, that's yep. fine. Okay. If I need to have a, a nap, if I get half an hour to forty five minutes, I feel I've achieved something big. Yep. So they're the type of things that I need. If I don't get the full night, full eight hours, seven hours, then and usually that happens when I have to ride work in the morning or trials, uh, I need to have a little power nap. Yep. And having uh having four children makes that a lot more difficult. Yep. Um but my wife and we, we start accommodating, so when I have the double header Mooney Valley Cox plate, uh Manicado steaks. I stay in the in the Crown Towers for those couple of nights yep. because I can guarantee to have a good night's sleep, and um, if I work out the room service well, I can get some. No, boo bento boxes too, which would be good. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so you focus on your weight. You focus on obviously your sleep and recovery, and your preparatory work involves, you know, getting your body in alignment, getting sort of you know experts in that field in terms of mas- massage and you know the whole sort of setup, hydration as best you can, and your preparation and planning. What's the third thing that you might think that has the biggest impact? And I, you know, you and I have talked about that. Work-life balance thing. You, you, you know, I think the third thing that I observe as as a friend and someone who watches what you do and gets the chance to speak you, with you regularly, is that you've got other people doing things that allow you to maybe get a pound nap on a, a, a drive to a regional track where you've got a, a valet driving you so that you can actually sleep in the back. Is that is that would that be a th- one of the third keys? Do you think?
3: Yeah, I find um, having having uh, Jimmy and and Ian to go to the races all the time, I just have an advantage. Uh, there's no doubt I. I feel I have a big advantage on those jockeys that have to concentrate about driving. Um, I can have a chinwag with them and a the chat and that's all good and well. Or I can have a sleep. And I'm very fortunate to have uh, to have that structure around me that allows me to do that and and forever grateful for that. In regards to um, the the other balanced part is I remember when I started off that everyone said to me, Craig, you need to have a break. Mm. You need to get away for You know, when you're not riding, all you do is thinking, watching replays and I still loved it. And out of respect, I said thank you very much. I appreciate the advice. Until my wife Lisa come along, until we had the children, then I didn't realise what they meant. And now that gives me a great balance, so I can have the greatest day at the track and come yeah. home and can be an absolute <laughs> shipwreck. <laughs> <laughs> but and I could have the I could have the worst day and then realise that you know if my children were unwell or not feeling well, and then realise that I remember going to the hospital a few times and you know being part of the ambulance. Um, System that you you get an ambulance to come to your home and take you to the the hospital and you're panicking and you're worrying and it could be croup and then you get to hospital and you see so many really sick children Mm. and you realise how lucky that you are and and I guess those the times when I get that appreciation and that that perspective where I don't want my children being a jockey Mm. I don't know anything different and and I can control a lot of things but even going back to a year and a half ago when you and I had discussions especially with the AFL yep. about about head injuries and um, I, I think I cover a lot of bases and i got a good understanding and feeling for my horses when they're not right and unfortunately this horse went past the wing post broke both his front legs and went straight over the top of me so and as it turned out um, I was lucky um, mm. I only, as friends said I can't call them friends but they said he landed on his head he has to be okay Yeah. but I ended up breaking a tooth and having to do a lot of, a lot of uh, dental work now and and also having that big hit on the head, um, it changed me for the next six weeks.
2: Yeah, and also ending up with a hoof print on your sort of chest protector, which showed that the horse kind of could have put all 500 odd kilos straight through your chest cavity but didn't. So, that, you know, that might be something we talk about in episode uh, two of this with you because it's uh, so much content that we, we do believe this is going to be a two part series, Peter. And I think it's fair to say that this first part's talking about the set for success for you. You've got great perspective. Perspective. You're a family man, loving husband, no matter whether you're having a great day at the track or a bad day at the track, when you come home and the kids are all well and he- healthy and happy, you feel like you've got wealth beyond counting. So I think that's you know, something I know about you incredibly well. But if I heard anything in this sort of episode, it's all about your preparation, your hard work, you've got an incredible work ethic, your, your planning for each race is just elite. There's no questions about that. And that's why you've been able to achieve the things we talked about in the introduction. You know, you don't get to be the premier jockey, you know, something like like six times and and it should have been seven but we'll worry about that at another stage you don't get those opportunities without you actually having a, a very strong work ethic I know you don't believe you're the most talented and the most gifted but I'll say this to anyone listening to this right here right now Hard work beats talent when talent doesn't want to work hard. And one of the things you do incredibly well is work a- a- incredibly hard. So, Pete, I think um, you know this first session is all about the set for success. When we come back, I wouldn't mind talking about how you uh, cope with adversity, like the one that you just yeah. explained there, because uh, I think that would be imp- important. Are you happy to do a, a second series with us,
0: Willow? Say yes, because you're going to do it anyway.
3: That's a yes. <laughs> <laughs> See well, you
0: next episode. Thanks. We trust you enjoyed listening to Voices of Value, a shared conversation between Rick Rushton and Peter Kakos. Their views are not necessarily those of the wider world, but they should be. If you're keen to enhance the quality of your life even further in the future, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your preferred podcast source. Our website is VoicesOfValuePodcast.com and we welcome both your feedback and ratings on the content we provide. Join the conversation again next week when Peter and Rick continue the search for truth, justice and the value-added way.